and welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jared Fuller, and this is my podcast about design criticism and practice. This week's episode is a really interesting one. I am joined by the industrial designer, educator, and author, Bruce Tharp. Bruce is an associate professor at the Stamp School of Art and Design in Michigan and runs the creative studio Materius with his wife, Stephanie. Bruce has this uh, really interesting background. He originally studied mechanical engineering and then went to graduate school at the Pratt Institute where he studied industrial design before going to the University of Chicago to get his PhD in sociocultural anthropology. Bruce and Stephanie recently published this massive new book for MIT Press called Discursive Design, where they are seeking to legitimize and problematize what they are kind of defining as this new field or area of design practice that they're calling discursive design. And that's really where this episode begins. I was curious to talk to Bruce about discursive design and what that is and how it's different than say something like critical design or speculative design. So we talk about the book and their goals for pushing for this new type of work, as well as Bruce's own background as both a designer and an anthropologist and how that's influenced his current research and sort of the roles of writing and research and, and design and how they all kind of fit together. This was a, such a fascinating conversation. Sometimes I think the most interesting episodes of the podcast are the ones where I'm talking to someone who's working in a field that I have very little knowledge about. And this felt like one of those. I feel like I learned a lot and we got into some really interesting discussions. So I hope that you like it and really encourage you to pick up the new book. It's really, really interesting. Remember, if you're a fan of the podcast and want to help support it, you can become a member for $5 a month or $50 a year. Members get an exclusive monthly newsletter that goes out at the beginning of every month and expands on the themes of the podcast, previews the upcoming episodes, and shares relevant and interesting links and stories about design and criticism and writing and all of the things that we're interested in here. These memberships really help keep the podcast going, and I just appreciate all of your support and hope that you enjoy my conversation with Bruce Tharp. You know, I kind of just want to start with with the big question, I guess. Um, what is discursive design? Yeah, discursive design, um, we kind of have a, a, a formal definition of it. Uh, mm-hmm. But really, so the, the term discursive comes from the word discourse. And by discourse, uh, we're really using the idea of uh, systems of thought or knowledge uh, as sort of the our, our working definition of dis, of discourse, and really this is the uh, the use of artifacts and artifacts we can begin to understand that very very broadly from right. services right. systems and um, so the use of artifacts to embody or engender these kind of discourses these ideas that are are are, are what we call substantive and that you know that means mm-hmm. that we we use you know psychological sociological and they have ideological import so, so they're they're not just any theme or simple idea but there's a that they're fundamentally debatable and contestable there's uh, competing narratives going going on and so this this uh um, leaves them in the the, the realm of the, of the sociocultural, really these kind of big topics and issues right. that we discuss and and debate um, every day in lots of different ways, whether implicitly or explicitly. I feel like um, you know we were talking before we kind of hit record that I I uh, come from a graphic design background and there are all these kind of sub design. Uh, modes or processes that are springing up all the time. There's critical design and speculative design and design fiction and strategic design. And you, in your book, you kind of talk about a couple of those and how those relate. Can you talk about how maybe either how discursive design is different than those or, or kind of what sets it apart or maybe um, even kind of putting it into a, some sort of trajectory of like how those fit together. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and the language is really important. And one of the things that we struggled mm-hmm. with as well. Uh, so we were exposed to, you know, this arena um, under the under the banner of, of critical design. Certainly right. when we were in grad school, Stephanie and myself, uh, she was at RISD and I was at Pratt and 
you know, conceptual design is really what people were, um, you know, sort of framed this as. And then I think that um, with with Tony Dunn and Fiona Raby, yeah. uh, and their the introduction of with, with Hertzian Tales in 1999, uh, the work that was done from his 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 uh, his PhD presentation right. at the RCA. That this sort of really sparked something uh, special, and I, I started teaching not too long after that. And the so critical design certainly came up as something that was helpful or useful for uh, for for our students in sort of opening them uh, up to the idea of an expanded mode or expanded expanded notion of what design is and and could be. But it's sort of very quickly we uh, run up against some of the limitations of critical design, and one of those being its relation to critical theory and the mm. uh, and and inherent criticisms actually of critical theory in terms of um, enlightenment and, ancip- and emancipation. Right, if those are we take those as two of the those key right. um, aspects of, of critical theory that we're going to you know enlighten and emancipate uh, others from these sort of uh, uh, structures of power that they may not be aware of and and we're, we're sort of liberating in a way right that, that comes with right. sort of an elitist critique comes along with it. i know right, and you right. won't know um so that was part of it and also just the uh the issue so that's sort of on a higher more theoretical scholarly level and sort of even on the on the ground a little bit you know the notion of cr- uh, critical and criticizing being mm-hmm. uh, being uh, being sort of negative and sort of a negative perspective on this from a, a almost a more colloquial a colloquial way, and we also began to look at where there is something even broader than criticism and 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 this the, and and mm. criticality. So um, so the idea of of discursiveness and discourse became uh, what we we what we felt more more useful. And so we started to think about what that could possibly be. We were actually really reticent. And so we knew right away that we wanted to begin to, to build on uh, uh, build on this area, to begin to help our students who wanted to do this kind of work. And that's, I think, one of the things that's unique about our book is that we're really focusing on, on tools and languages and processes and frameworks that help designers do this kind of, of work. So we're really beginning right. to, to focus on, on that aspect of it. And... We didn't. We actually were very reticent about introducing a new term for for, yeah. for this. It's like, oh my gosh, you know. Yeah. So we're really for a long time. We really kind of clung to critical design up until the point we just felt we couldn't sort of hold on anymore to this, um, and and where discourse began to be more relevant. And so the the way we position this is so we we use what we call a sort of a genus and species analogy. So the idea is discursive design is the genus and within that genus there are all these other species like critical design, adversarial design, design fiction, mm. speculative design, um, you know some more historic and some that are sort of on the on the cusp and even maybe fairly esoteric. Uh, but for us, we didn't want to get sort of bogged down in a relatively new field right. with with some of the language. In fact, with all of the research, uh, the interviews that we did with work, this it was very clear that uh, designers are sort of uncomfortable with like how they begin to name and call and identify. <laughs> and yeah. and it, was just, it was almost funny. Uh, we always hated asking the question. Um, and a lot of them just sort of gave, you know, like, oh, whatever, you know, it's critical spec. It doesn't really matter. Um, uh, and, and so that's, and, and we've been finding more and more people sort of adopting discursive as a way to, to remove from some of these sort of uh, individual definitions that are that are there that that are sort of completely normal and natural for so for for a young field. So I think this will it'll, it'll work itself out, and people will be able to distinguish. You know, perhaps I think um, you know what's the difference between speculative design and design fiction, for example. I mean, some people right, sort of right. design fiction really a subcategory of speculative design. You know. So these things are going to work you know, yeah. work themselves out, and in a way, we're less concerned about the labeling of this, and mm-hmm. more concerned about like how to begin to do this kind of work, however you may want to define it. Because they all, I think, there's there is something to the distinctions between them that there is, I, I would say, something a, a little bit more distinctive of design fiction and speculative design, um, and that's probably mm-hmm. the use of narrative. Um, and, right. and, oh, and it's, did, it's yeah. completely fine. And, uh, 
and uh, the analogy that I often uses of, of music, um, you know, we, there are literally tens of thousands of subgenres of music. Um, there's a website that I think is everynoise.com or everynoise.org that basically is is looking at, at identifying these subgenres. And, right. and that's completely fine. It, it's, it can be a little bit difficult, right, to navigate, of course. But the idea that there are distinctions, and these can be very meaningful distinctions for the people who are doing the work. And I, I don't feel like I should say that your distinction that you find meaningful, you know, saying that that's not relevant or important or valuable. So I, I think it's a natural consequence. And I'm personally, I'm excited to see more development. And, and I think along with more development or types of projects and different emphases that we'll, we'll, we'll find more language that becomes uh, more appropriate. So I think the list of types of design that are beneath this sort of rubric or underneath the umbrella of discursive design, I think it's going to continue to grow. Um, at least for a while, and I think then there may be some consolidation. But uh, fundamentally, we're less concerned with the, the the naming game than we are sort of how to how to work with, um, uh, you know, in our cases as, as academics, uh, students, right. and other designers who want to do this kind of work. Yeah, I have okay. I have like <laughs> like three or four different questions that I want to kind of pull out of of what you just said because <laughs> I think. I, I think there's something really interesting here, and I'm going to try to formulate some sort of coherent uh, way to talk about this. So I, I totally see the influence of Dunn and Raby, and I think, just kind of side note, I think Hertzian and Tales is lesser known of their work, but kind of way more interesting in a lot of ways. I think there's a lot to that, and, and it always is speculative. Everything is the one that kind of everyone knows for them, so I love that you brought that one up. Um but, you know, what's interesting or, or what I want to try to maybe articulate a little bit is that I think you're right that um, there's a certain narrativity to speculative design or, or design fiction. And I think um, people like Dunn and Raby or kind of even more in the in the graphic designs, design side, uh, people like Metahaven yeah. tend to work in more art contexts um, or in in kind of it's removed from the market i guess is is kind of what i'm thinking about and what's interesting to me potentially about discursive design there's a line in in the book that i really loved where you said um artifacts and their consumption allow the social to be made visible mm -hmm. and i think including consumption in there is kind of really important and it it reminds me of something that comes up on this podcast all the time that I kind of think of design as ideologies made artifact. It's kind of taking these ideas and turning them into objects. Mm -hmm. And so I guess my two questions are, is could you talk about kind of discursive design as it relates to consumption or to the market or to the kind of commercial side of design? And then secondly, and this may or may not be related, so I'm sorry to just kind of throw all of this at you at once. I'm hearing you say this, I'm almost wondering if all design is kind of a discursive design. Right. Okay, yes. Um, well, I would say, answer the second one um, okay. uh, first, and I'll probably have you have to have you remind me of the first one. Okay. Um, so, yes, uh, I, I think certainly it can be. I mean, so the way we distinguish uh discursive design is really the goal is reflection. So we're mm -hmm. using the artifact to get people to reflect on these discourses. So they're embodied and engendered through these artifacts. And that's the, 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 not the ultimate goal, but sort of the, um, at least the first goal that we're, sh that we're shooting for. So we're, this is an intellectual engagement as opposed to one that's necessarily, uh, utilitarian. Right. Right. So, um, so, Absolutely, uh, all designs can be discursive. I think part of the question is the the degree to which that is intentional or not. Certainly, and mm. you know, the uh, social sciences, you know, look at this um, in great depth. We look at the the power of all you know, discourses that are in all kinds of objects uh, around us. So again, explicit, implicit, you know, often implicit. Um, so yes, anything can be discursive in this way. 
Uh, for us, the question is the degree to which is it, it's intentionally discursive. And oh, it's something that uh, especially product designers have had sort of less, um, it's been a little less legitimate to, mm-hmm. to use a commercial product as a mode or, or industrial design practice as a mode for that type of reflection. And I'm not right. really sure why. Architecture has had it. Graphic design has had mm-hmm. it. Fashion design. So, um, but for some reason, uh, product design has sort of been left out of that permission. And I think that was what was so fantastic about what Dunn and Raby have done is they uh, they sort of hit hit it right and really got uh, got people to begin to think about the possibility product designers about the possibility for doing that kind of work. And so it really helped with the legitimacy of it. So for me, that's um, one of the things we also talk about is um, is in terms of relationship with sort of mass markets and sort of typical or traditional product design or industrial design is that you have certain constraints you're working underneath, right? If you're, if you're working right. within the marketplace, those are given constraints. So um, does it mean that you can't have any there's no dis- discourse or discursiveness there, I would say, no, it just becomes a little bit more constrained. It's a little harder to do that. And it's also a little more challenging um, in, a, in a commercial context because people don't expect their commercial products to have necessarily have a kind of discourse um, that's right. embedded in them. Yeah, certainly they can, they can you know, add that to them and they can appropriate them in those ways, but we don't necessarily expect it. So there's a little bit of a challenge there, but absolutely. And, and I, we encourage our students who uh, are interested in, in discursive design, but also are interested in commercial design to think about how they may begin to bring those, uh, those together. And when we often talk about, and actually one of the ways of you know, framing this, and this is in the book as well, uh, we, we talk about these sort of four fields or four types of design or four agenda right. for design the commercial, responsible, experimental, and the discursive. And with those, that um, it allow, one of the things is that they're not discrete categories, but they're really right. agendas. And we can begin to combine those agendas. And so a lot of times, you know, if you're a commercial designer, but you really want to have this kind of voice and, and uh, that, that discursive design has, then you think about how you might bring an element of discursive with discursiveness within you know, a, a different type of project. In fact, some people even think that in a way, like all like responsible design projects are, are fundamentally discursive uh, because right. they're, because of the context. You think of them, you know, this responsible design, which is more, you know, philanthropic or, or altruistic. And, you know, for example, mm-hmm. you're, you're working in Uganda on, on, um, on uh, solar cookers or something like that. You know, that, that, that in and of itself is uh, very discursive. You're getting people, the existence of that product gets people to reflect on, uh, on their own and, and largely the, the, the others we're talking about are so people that are you know, more privileged in, um, you know, sort of the, the global North is, and it gets, you know, to begin to reflect on, on your sort of privilege and, uh, that, that you have for him. So, so right. I would say, yes, uh, all, all of these can be discursive and we're interested in, in potentially, uh, how we might begin to blend these a little bit, these, these agendas. I, you know, I, I teach graduate students, um, in graphic design in a program, um, at Pratt actually, uh, that's, that's very research heavy. And there, there is a, uh, emphasis on using these kind of what I'm going to call alternative modes of design, critical design, speculative design. I think discursive design clearly kind of fits into this. And I always feel a little bit guilty or a little bit weird. I, I, I always have a group of students that are like, this is really interesting, but I also need to get a job yeah, <laughs> after yeah. this. And, and I'm, I, I want to, this might just be my, my me just asking you for teaching advice at this point. Um, you know, I kind of wanted to show them that these, these kind of alternative modes of practice can filter into other, um, more commercial context. And, you know, I'm, I'm someone who's more on, on the academic side. Um, but I also feel a certain responsibility to, to my students of kind of how, how can you kind of start to blend these together a little bit? Right. Well, um, so this is one of actually in, in going back a little bit when, so where, where this all started for us and, 
um, where we were coming up against some of the limitations of, of critical design, at least how um, Tony and uh, Tony Don and Fiona Raby were, were discussing it. It was really, it, would, it was pitted against the market, right? There was mm-hmm, affirmative right. design and then there was critical design. And there was, it was, so it was, it was very explicitly explicit that the this type of design could not exist in the marketplace. Right, and right. that was that was for a, a little. I don't know if it's the the the, the final straw, um, but it was really a, a big part of it because we saw the the potential for it in um, in a commercial context potentially. Right, and, and of course that comes along with all kinds. Of, of 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 limitations, like I was mentioning before, right? There, there's limitations when you're working in the marketplace. Things that you can't do, people don't expect. Um, but it doesn't mean that there's not value there. Um, and so it, it is a bit of a compromise from maybe a sort of a pure, um, sort of a pure application of, of that. But it still has value. It could still reach. Uh, in some ways, many, many, many more people than you could with, you know, a critical design exhibition, you know, that uh, that's attended by maybe a couple hundred people that all right. are sort of, you know, thinking the same way anyway, right? It's not necessarily the audience you want to you attend to. And I think in general, the field is sort of re- has recognized that a little bit. So the idea of the commercial was always something for us um, where we found uh, where we found potential and still there folks within this um, w- within these area that still sort of see that distinction is, is that mm-hmm. it cannot exist there but for our, our argument is that it, 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 it absolutely can um, so I think for for students that um, completely get where you're coming from it's something that we and the other academics uh, are are in that space as, as yeah. well like everyone's sort of uh, deal, uh, you know having to deal with that that question. And um, so, like I was mentioning before, is that I think you can bring discursiveness into um, into a commercial practice. I think it's possible. Not necessarily always easy, and it comes with compromises, but I think it's possible. I, I do also think that it's important, if, if I'm doing my job as a design professor, that I want to expose students to the breadth of what the right. field right. offers. Right, exactly. And it's yeah. not just commercial. Um, and right. so, so for me, just on a on a basic level, I feel I'm do I'm being responsible by exposing them to the possibilities that are out there. Um, so not necessarily with the expectation that they're going to use it, but they're going to at least be able to put what they want to do out of what they want from design, um, what what agendas they bring design that they can put those into context and understand that there are other ones that are out there right. and uh, and available to them. I do think so. One, I think that there um, there are certainly more opportunities now than ever to do discursive kind of of work um, within institutions. Right. Um, so it's it's still admittedly very very small, but we've got great examples out there um, with uh, the Situation Lab, uh, Near Future Laboratory, mm, yeah. um, uh, uh, Extrapolation Factory, Superflux. So there are a number right. of, of, of smaller firms that are, 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 are working in this space. Uh, and so I think there is the, the possibility of doing that. There's also the possibility, and this is sort of maybe the most viable for a lot of sort of young designers, is that they have a commercial day job and this is the kind of work they may do on the side. Um, mm. That's still, if you're really interested in this kind of work and you believe in these discourses and you want to have sort of impact on people's, uh, you know, what they're, they're, they're thinking a little bit that, you know, as a designer, you want to participate more deeply in society in this way that you can do this stuff on, on the side. So I think that's um, th- definitely the, the lowest hanging fruit. I also think that I mean one of the ways I think that uh, that uh, discursive design is, is sort of in benefiting is from the field of strategic foresight um, and its relation to and its relationship to speculative design. So we're seeing more and more, um, uh, and they tend to be larger companies that have a budget for strategic foresight. Uh, they are investing in the tools, mostly of speculative design in that, that arena. So that's helping to propel the field forward a little bit. And I, for me, this is, I, I see a lot of parallels and we write a little bit of, in the book about this with design research. So I was around when design research in the United mm-hmm. States was not really a thing and not, um, not necessarily even respected 
uh, that much. In fact, it was even right. seen as antithetical to design. Right. When, when right. I left, uh, when I left Pratt uh, to pursue a PhD in in cultural anthropology, uh, I, I had people at Pratt saying, "Well, you know, after you've done your PhD, don't come back here and tell me what I need to design." Huh. You know, the idea that research was basically, you know, um, uh, 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 trammeling uh, or you know, um, stifling uh, creativity, right? And so it's completely different now. That we, in fact, I think the pendulum might actually have swung, you know, too far to the other side. Um, but there was that that issue was was absolutely there with with um, design. So I see some parallels um, between where how discursive design is sort of maturing and in that in 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 and with design research really i think that the web and the the influx or the demand you know with the information age where we basically have computational devices and we begin to need we start to need to begin to understand how people are using these very new and different forms and and interfaces that that actually helped propel design research a great deal so there was this really a business um, need for this kind of, of work, uh, design research work. And I see, you know, strategic foresight operating in the same kind of way with, with the, the, the field in general. It's helping to propel, propel it forward a little bit. And I guess the last thing um, that I think can be powerful for uh, young designers or an, actually any designer uh, that, who wants to do this kind of work um, is, is crowdfunding. And this sort of wasn't around when we were first sort of kicking around, um, you know, some of the possibilities for how this, uh, um, uh, like how designers might do this work. Yeah. It really, a lot of the limitations, so you have advantages to the mass marketplace generally because it's mass. You get more people who are able to, um, uh, to are exposed to your work. Um, the disadvantage of that is that you don't have full control of the messaging. Um, largely because right. we're working through uh, manufacturers and distributors who may not want to be seen as as uh, as too provocative. So you don't have control. Right. Of, yeah. You don't have control of the message. Uh, however, with Kickstarter, for example, or any crowdfunding platform, you get the advantages of the platform and more eyeballs and ears, sort of hearing and seeing what you're doing. Uh, but you also control the messaging on that. So it's for me. It's I'm really excited about the possibility of crowdfunding platforms for for this field in in a way that allows designers to uh, you know do more work and do it differently and perhaps better. Um, actually, get right. these things in people's hands potentially. Although I still think it can be you know you, it can be used the same way as almost like the way marketing you know you use Kickstarter for marketing something yeah, yeah, more yeah. so than yeah, actual yeah. Um, that it can be used that way. But but the the fact that you can help that that platform can actually help people get discursive artifacts in their lives and, and get that interaction and experience with, I think is really uh, in, in, incredible. And I, and I think it is possible uh, that, that people may, that designers may be able to have careers the way commercial designers now have careers on Kickstarter, where they, they basically right, do two or three right. projects a year. And, and there are some really great examples of people who left corporate America to, um, as a designer and are now independent and do one, two, three Kickstarter campaigns a year and make, you know, an equivalent amount that they were when they were, uh, when they were a, a, you know, a, a corporate product designer. So I still, right. I see that possible because we already see it in this other arena. I see that I don't see why discursive design couldn't operate in that same, that same model as a way to, to, to make a living. Right. And, and what I think is really interesting is, and, and please correct me if this is a kind of wrong reading or, or is maybe a little bit different, but when I think of, again, I don't mean to keep kind of drawing comparisons to critical design or speculative design, but I often see those as uh, all about the product or all about the output. And when I read the book and, and talking to you, I'm getting a sense that discursive design Yes, it's about the product, but it's just as much about the process. And it's just as much about the thinking that kind of goes into the design process. And when you think about it that way, then that can be kind of embedded in any type of, you know, any type of design. And I again, to kind of think about graphic design, I, I think about the designers who are kind of very thoughtful in 
uh, choosing typefaces that carry some sort of additional meaning or, um, you know, branding systems that can kind of carry larger messages and things like that, that when you kind of build that reflection into the process itself, um, it, yes, it changes the product, but that product doesn't have to then be a discursive product, right? Yeah. And I would say too, I mean, you were talking about the, the, the buildup to the artifact. And I think one of the, the big moves now as the field has matured is looking at the dissemination. Um, mm. So I think mm. in sort of the early days uh, where, you know, a designer, you know, creating an artifact and putting it on a website, um, that I think there's um, increasing skepticism or mm-hmm. we, we see the limitations of that approach. Um, so one of the arguments we make with our students, we make heavily in the, the book, is that you know if you really care about these ideas, uh, then you should be thinking much more about the dissemination of these ideas and how to do that. Right. And this yeah. is an area that's really, it's tough. It's, it's a generally new territory for designers, right? We, we, we focus on the artifact. And then in a commercial context, we let other people, marketers, but in a way we're asking designers at least to, if not do that themselves, to collaborate, just like we do in the commercial realm, to collaborate with those who can help you do that. That it's really half the project when you have an artifact. And I think, mm-hmm. this is, I mean, this, I think Carl DeSalvo in Adversarial Design, uh, which is, right. I would consider sort of the second more, most substantive, uh, the, the second book to come out in, in a very substantive way on this, you know, the idea of assembling publics. That you as right, a designer right. have, if you are going to work in this arena, you have the responsibility of of, of also assembling the public um, to to whom or to which you're you're speaking. Um, and so there's a little bit of a. I, I think that's where we're, we're we're going. And as yeah, as we've as as the field has grown up and is growing up. Uh, that we're we're seeing more and more of a of an emphasis on this and something well and to help you know sort of uh, put a point on this we we talk about audience centered design mm-hmm. more so than user centered design mm-hmm. so to be, you know because uh, product designers especially we're thinking about user 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 and um, and it's a, a slight but important shift to begin to think about the audience here certainly the audience has a relationship yeah. to use they can be the user but the use is not necessary it's not the ultimate goal right if we we've defined the right. reflection that we want to use utility as a way to get people to reflect or have a deeper or a different kind of reflection so we're using utility for ref, for reflection so it's a little it's a it's a different mode and that's why it's often it's 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 we think it's tough uh to do this yeah. kind of work because it's this is kind of a weird shift that goes on and it but we're really i think fundamentally focused on the audience if we're thinking about discursiveness i want to kind of shift gears a little bit i would love to talk about your background you had mentioned that you studied industrial design at pratt and then you went to study um anthropology. And when I was kind of researching you and preparing for this, I saw you you had originally studied uh, mechanical engineering, and then you you went to Pratt for industrial design, and then you kind of make this shift over into the anthropology. Can you talk a little bit about that trajectory and kind of what you were thinking as you were kind of moving through that education system? Yeah, um, it, it's it's not as disparate as, uh, as one would think. Uh, there's okay. definitely a thread through there. Uh, but I, I, I studied mechanical engineering. My father was an industrial engineer. And so mm. that was something that was familiar to me. I didn't really know. In fact, it's kind of funny. I really didn't know what I wanted to do. And um, I actually sent out um, my senior year in high school, I was sending out query letters because I thought I might want to be an optometrist. <laughs> so it was, it was oh, kind of funny. Wow. Yeah, well, actually, one of those things with like California achievement tests and things like that, you know, they came back and they say um, like, oh, a doctor would be a good, um, uh, good profession right. for you. And, yeah. and, and I was like, but I hate blood. And so I thought about it <laughs> as a way of thinking like, okay, well, if, if, if the system thinks, you know, being a doctor would be a good fit for me, but I hate blood, well, maybe optometry could be a way. So I, it's a I love that. Yeah. You know, when you think about it now. So um, 
but in this sort of college, you know, my senior year looking at colleges, you know, my, I, I looked to my father and he was uh, sort of influential in this way. And, and so we thought that mechanical engineering would be sort of a good, uh, you know, a, a good fit. Um, but I was, cause I was, uh, you know, like many uh, product, I, I was always, you know, tinkering as a, you know, as a kid and yeah, moving yeah. things and inventing things. Um, so it seemed like a, a pretty good fit. Uh, but, you know, during um, when I was doing engineering, uh, it, you know, it was very quick. It was really interesting for the first year and a half. And after that, it became a, uh, not as interesting. Um, mm. that the, the, and what, uh, what I realized is, is we were moving further and further away from people hmm. and, uh, and other issues. It was, it was, it was, it was very technical, which makes, you know, complete sense. So there was a degree of the, 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 the technical aspect that just wasn't resonating with me. Um, so I finished up the, um, uh, engineering degree partially because I, I had to, I was on a, uh, an ROTC scholarship. So, um, hmm. I went into the military right after my, um, my work. So I basically was committed to mechanical engineering. If oh, I, wow. needed. Okay. Fact, I think I may have even had to pay the army back if, um, if I switched, uh, wow. switched. So I was, I was committed and, um, and it was while I was in, um, I, I was in the military, I was in Germany, uh, and I was an army a nuclear weapons officer. And while I was there, I was, I was thought, okay, well, I'll use this time to, you know, help me figure out what I, what I want to do. And it's kind of a funny yeah. story where, um, uh, I had a friend who was also a mechanical engineer who knew that I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And he sent me a, uh, a photocopy of um, uh, Peter's, I think it was Peterson's Guide for Graduate Schools. I don't still know if it's okay. a, a popular guide. And he photographed a page and, and, and mailed it to me. And he had in, in interior design circled on it. And I kind of read it and I was like, nah, that's not quite a fit. But just above it was industrial design. Yeah. Well, I said, "Whoa, that's that's really interesting." So I I spent my time in the military uh, writing every industrial designer and design schools to try and understand if you know, this was a fit. So um, when I when I uh, got out of the the military, then that's when I uh, enrolled in um, at Pratt in in uh, in their in their graduate industrial design program, and just absolutely okay. loved it. I mean, it was I, I yeah. found my I found my home. So, um, so it was, you know, somewhat stifled Crete, uh, yeah. with, with the military, you can imagine. Uh, <laughs> right, right. So this is really just sort of extraordinary for me to do that. And I, you know, I consider myself first and foremost, a, a, an industrial designer, a product designer. And, uh, but, but at Pratt, especially at this time, um, w- which is very artifact based and, um, and and I would say concerned with aesthetics. They have a, a long history mm-hmm. tradition of aesthetics with Verena Reed Costello and and that sort of uh, movement. Um, that that there was something that was lacking and understanding the social. Um, so we have these artifacts, and as designers, we're able to you know, you know we have opinions about them. But this is really before user research was there wasn't a, a user research class or anything like that. So it was right. sort of really sort of secondary or tertiary, and 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 then even more so is this issue of the the social, not what an individual might think of this, but how do these things exist in a social context? And so I I began sort of looking at programs that would allow me to understand um, understand artifacts in this way and uh, and it was I had no I had no idea where to where to, where to go where did that interest even come from or like where I mean if you were in this program that was kind of really focused on aesthetics was that were you kind of like odd man out how did that um, yes I think maybe in a way right I think again I think that at the time there was I mean it was a fairly big program so you know you have all kinds right. of different people coming into it um, so I, I don't I don't don't think I was alone necessarily but I I definitely had a, a, a strong sense that there was something lacking right okay and okay. and it was for actually a lot of it was sparked by by my thesis project so I did a thesis called um, with product in the soul. And I was really looking at, you know, how products might be able to engage in a, in a very, in a, in a deeper way with people rather than sort of hmm. utility or, you know, pure aesthetics, right? Um, so I was doing a lot of reading and that, for that, and that the reading for that really began to let, led me in some ways to oh, anthropology, see. material culture, consumption, um, that kind of, the, the, that kind of reading. And I, I just realized with my thesis that I, I just, there, I've just, 
just scratch the surface of this. It was right. interesting to me, um, but there was so much more. And so I started looking into PhD programs like science and technology studies and um, sociology, anthropology, even I was thinking even theology, uh, potentially to oh, wow. address wow. some of these things. And, and in that process, I, I graduated and I, I stuck around at Pratt. I was working at Pratt for, for two years. And I, I used that time uh, partially to plan my my next move and to, to really begin to look at, at PhD programs uh, that, of where I where I could study and uh, and it turned out that uh, the social cultural anthropologists were the ones that were most open to uh, to to what I was interested in and so uh, I was I, I feel lucky that um, the those that uh, at the University of Chicago which is you know, a premier um, anthropology program were, was they were able to sort of see sort of a, a glimmer in in what I was interested in and so they were supportive of uh, of my uh, of my work there so there I was really looking at material culture consumption the production and consumption of value um, and it was all centered around the artifacts so in a way if we look you know we were I'm moving from and in this you know I guess in a way moving from object to thing you know if we want to sort of invoke some of that uh, but yeah. yeah, you know, I was looking at basically artifacts and how they're made and manufactured, and then you know, moving on to you know maybe aesthetics and some issues of usability. If we think about you know product design, and really to this idea with anthropology, understanding these things in, in much broader broader contexts, and uh, and and some of the different values that we begin to um, we we see in in this work. So there is that that thread of the artifact, but different aspects of the artifact. Uh, throughout my seemingly disparate uh, uh, educational. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting to hear you kind of talk about it too, because I think if someone were to look at your, your CV or something, it would almost look like a, the anthropology was maybe a move away from design or away from being a designer, but it sounds like you were doing that very much with the goal to enrich your design work there it, that that these things were coming together for you in the making it was not a purely theory and research based interest it was always coming back to the object and the thing right in a way i looked at this the whole time as a detour in fact some people laugh like oh you're gonna take do a phd at the university of chicago as a detour you know <laughs> right. uh, you know to to really to come back to design and so i right. really that's so interesting as a way to in, in enrich uh and come to design with a basically a, a, the 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 broadest and best understanding that i that i could I'm I'm really interested in that kind of intersection between the theory and the making and and how those you know how those things can kind of come together more and I'm curious what that PhD experience you know what did you kind of take away from that that has influenced how you think about your role as a designer how does that even kind of how did the stuff that started there become what is now discursive design maybe even um the I, I was always a little bit of an you know the odd man out in my uh anthropology program uh, in, <laughs> yeah. in, in many 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 ways uh for example you know i i was you know my first day of class i had never taken an anthropology class in my life and i'm sitting next to people who had master's degrees from in anthropology from Harvard and mm -hmm. Princeton. And so I was very much uh, uh, the uh, sort of uh, an outsider. And also, right. also the fact that I wanted to do a, in a way I was interested in saw value in, in applied anthropology, which at right. one time, especially at the university of Chicago was really seen as a, a almost a kind of prostitution uh, of, of the field of anthropology. And, and also I was, I was interested in, I was an Americanist. I was interested in anthropology and, the, and, and uh, you specifically U S culture. That's what I wanted, mm. which at that time that, that was also seen as anthropology, true anthropologists or serious anthropologists work in other cultures, right? Because you're biased as a, mm. as, as an right. American, how can you study American culture? Right. But of course we bring all these other biases uh, everywhere else. And you know, there's always the, you know, the joke that, you know, when the, the anthropologist uh, arrives on, you know, at the, 
you know, for the first time to do field work and they're pulling up their boat and the Troberand Islands, you know, who are the first pe- people they meet? Well, three other anthropologists that are, <laughs> right. so that kind of thing. So, so I yeah. think that the, the, the field of anthropology is sort of, um, also become more open to certainly I think applied anthropology and also um, uh, being an Americanist, for example. So I was you know, you say uh, right. my 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 experience there was not uh, typical in any way, and I was sort of had to make it work um, the the whole time. So my, my study and uh, was with the uh, the Old Order Amish and in, mm. in Indiana. So I was really looking at their material culture and consumption. One of the one of the the overriding question uh-huh. that I had in from my my dis, my thesis at Pratt at Product in the Soul was um, uh, how 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 do what can people get out of stuff and are there limitations right. and uh, why, right. why do we why are our lives largely oriented about, around the 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 uh, the um, acquisition. Uh, and consumption of this stuff, and you know, is it ultimately mm-hmm. so? Some of those questions. So, I, w- I was really interested in um, societies or cultures that had made shifts in their relationship to material culture. And you know, being interested in America, that really I, it kind of left me with three opportunities. Uh, one was the voluntary simplicity movement. So, this was. Um, People, let's say they were um, who had voluntarily sort of stepped away from sort of conventional mainstream society and took on a different role. And, and so the, the, what's typical is, you know, I, I was a lawyer and I worked for, you know, 15 years. I actually have a lot right, of money right, now, right, right. Yeah. and I'm going to go, you know, start a farm in Vermont or something like that. Um, so that kind of right. community, and that's that's sort of a little bit of an extreme example of, of that. But um, so it was one possibility. There's something called the voluntary simplicity movement. Uh, and th- there are problems with that is it's not much of a culture and a society. It's, 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 uh, th- th- that, that's what the challenge is in right. that area. But it, I thought of, you know, as a possibility, um, the other one was, you know, native Americans, uh, with casino wealth. And that's kind of the opposite, uh, in a way, mm-hmm. sort of looking at a, sh- a sort of a shift up in material culture, but that had been largely done. There's a lot, you know, lots and lots of anthropologists working mm-hmm. with native American communities. Um, and the last one was with the Amish and I never th- had thought about it, um, a whole lot because I didn't think I would really be able to get access to it. But the idea with the Amish, especially in you know 20th, um, 21st century, is that uh, it's becoming increasingly difficult to, uh, to make a living right. farming. And what's right. happening is they're taking on a lot of communities. The, they're taking on and are more open to uh, other types of work. And the community in northern Indiana... Uh, has uh, a very large population of Amish that are working in uh, uh, doing uh, industrial, like manufacturing. Um, a lot of RV capital of the world is in that in that area. Right. In the United yeah. States, I think. Um, and so they do a lot of make a lot of RVs and things like that. So they're doing piece rate uh, manufacturing work, and because of that, they have greater disposable income, they have greater leisure time, and they have greater exposure to other people who. Um, from that are non-Amish that are um, uh, that have different relationship to material culture. So because of the, the that shift in work, that people's their their orientation to material culture had shifted uh, somewhat. And so that is ultimately what I ended up studying is their their production and consumption of value, how their religious values uh, become instantiated in the value. That they see in individual artifacts. So I was really look. That was the the the, the sort of overriding question that I was I was looking yeah. at, uh, and and this, and also there was this, uh, you know, I, I, sort of there was a sustainability question that I had, and I think that a lot of industrial designers um, feel, and I think all industrial designers should sort of reflect on: is their role in in uh, sustainability and their role in mass you know consumption and some of the 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 the, the dark side of the industry that we're that we're part of. Um, so for me, I was it was part of looking at the Amish was like, hey, listen, if these people have figured out a way to do this, you know, what 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 might the non-Amish be able to learn from the Amish in this case? And so we're right. also you know wondering about um, uh, about that uh, from a sustainability standpoint. Um, but what I what I did find is that um, that they are tempted just as much as we are. <laughs> right, they have right. a, a hankering for stuff just like we do. And actually, and this is, I mean, with the threat of eternal damnation 
for having a hankering for stuff. <laughs> they still hanker for stuff. So, right. so for me, the, the 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 pull of 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 material culture is incredibly strong, and I don't think we're going to be able to um, to quell it from the from the from the desire side necessarily. I think that at at the level of materials and systems that we might be able to make a better impact. But you know, I, I go back to this. You know, eternal damnation. You know, if you want this stuff and you use this stuff in your life, and they still want it. Like, right. Without that sort of religious, you know, mandate, I'm, I'm, you know, I, what, what, what do I have? Well, you know, what hope do I have? Like, right, you know, the the right, voluntary right. nature of this is really, really challenging, and this is something that anthropologists have, have found. Like we look throughout the world, and we see even in places where there's very what we would say little you know the quantity of material culture still we use artifacts they're incredibly important for social distinction and all and how we begin to construct our 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 worlds and our lives and and so it, it's it's really really we we can't escape the power of of stuff um, right. so 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 in terms of what i bring to design from that one actually i mean from a very practical standpoint the idea of user research and the tools of anthropology in um, of, in 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 user research. So I, I I don't know if I am, but I think it's very likely that I was the first uh, yeah. product designer to ever you know get a PhD in anthropology, um, and and so I was I was kind of right there at the time when design research and um, and and anthropology and dis- and ethnography were being introduced and you know coming into uh, design. So I kind of brought that expertise into in a very practical way, but in a um, but and so and I teach you know design research for example so and I, I sort of bring anthropology yeah. in that way um, and then in a in a less direct way I'm also inter- um, bringing in these ideas of of the social more broadly into uh, into the studio and, and classrooms when we think about uh, mm-hmm. how how we're how we're designing and 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 who we're designing for and where this stuff lives and what kinds of, of value are produced from it um, and from a discursive design standpoint. It's probably a little less, although in a way, um, some of the the thinking that we did in the book, you know, sort of certainly comes from this material culture and consumption perspective and how we begin to think about the role of objects in society in in, in ways about that have to deal with social construction and, and, and issues like issues like that. So it's less direct in that way, but certainly some of the ideas right. Uh, and theorists that I was exposed to, um, I, I, they're, yeah, they, they're brought into some of the, the theorization and thinking about um, about the, the field of discursive design. But one of the things yeah. I would say too is that um, one of the things that we're interested in, Stephanie and myself, is how the field can even grow. Right? It's relatively young. Mm-hmm. If we if we go back, to, you know, if it's 1999 and Hertzian entails, you know, we've had you know two decades or so of of this kind of work, and. Um, and one of the chapters that we have in the book is about the domains of, of discursive design. And part of that is sort of where design is operating right now, but also where it could be operating. Right. And so we're really interested in how this type of work might begin to expand in different ways. And, uh, and one of the, or a couple of those are certainly in the, in the research realm with an applied research yeah. And, and it's it's being it's being done already. In fact, that was you know we our four categories are social engagement, practical application, applied research, and basic research. Um, and and basically, we look at social engagement is really the where most of the work has been done. Um, and applied research is kind of next, right? We begin to think and and we like say Phillips Design with their um, their 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 um, their design probes project uh, a while. Oh right. The right. idea that you're 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 using discursive artifacts to um, as research tools to understand people's values, beliefs, and attitudes, and then you take though that understanding and then you begin to apply it in in uh, how in, in whatever realm you want, and it could be commercial or whatever. Um, but part of the thing we're also really excited about is the possibility of what we call um, practical application. How this can be um, a pl- can be directly useful and operative, and it really comes uh, if we think about um, 
we, we, I think some of the examples like uh, counseling, coaching, um, therapy, uh, deliberative democracy, that we can see these artifacts as tools uh, in deliberative democracy, for example, to um, help visualize potential right. futures that we might vote right. on, for example. So the idea is yeah. used right before a vote or in counseling um, that we might begin to think about these artifacts as ways to help people to reflect in in useful in useful ways. So we're also interested in sort of the the how discursive design can be used even more broadly. So we have a very so certainly discursive design is part of an expanded notion of design itself and our right. approach to discursive design is even expansive in and of itself because we include the the possibility of the marketplace, we include these different domains beyond right. just sort of very typical social engagement. I, you know, I'm interested you're talking about this idea of kind of expanding these kind of expanding notions of design and you are somebody that works as a designer you also are a teacher it seems like writing is something that's very important to your practice i'm kind of interested in how all of those fit together for you like how does how does kind of being in the classroom or or you know writing a, a essay or writing this book how do those things kind of filter back into the design process or, or vice versa? Um, that's a good question. Uh, I don't, I don't think I could do any one of them. Uh, uh, right. I think yeah. it, I, I, it sounds like a little about your background as well is that, yeah. is that uh, I, I always knew that I wanted to teach uh, in, some oh, okay. capa- in some capacity. Uh, you know, I, at Pratt, we had the overwhelming, I, I think we had 48 professors at Pratt when I was there, and only three were full-time professors. So the idea of the professor was something I was very, very familiar with, and I certainly imagined myself sort of in that role at at some point. So I didn't didn't necessarily know like when uh, or to what degree I would would teach, but it it turned out that I I started doing that full-time. So, but I, but I'm, have always been a maker, so that aspect uh, is always important to me. And, and, you know, for me, I love being an academic because I basically part of my, the, the time, uh, you know, my, my 40 hours a week um, yeah, yeah. Is, is I have the responsibility of doing work and doing my own research there. So I'm in the classroom, but I'm also doing uh, the research. And as a, as a designer, we, we, I think we have, as a design academic, we have like this luxury of being able to choose in, in most places, you know, if we want our right. practice to be more, you know, on the making side or more on the sort of academic and writing side. So it's a wonderful, for me, a wonderful freedom to, to, to have. So um, I go back and forth at times where I'm more interested in the making and then other times where I'm, you know, uh, I'm more interested in, in the writing. And usually the writing for me is I'm not a natural, like I don't naturally write or journal. Um, but for me, it's a way when I, I, I write when I feel I need to write and I need to make something. Yeah. And, and it's a great, yeah. great way to do that. And really that's the, the, the impetus of the book was, was absolutely, I was, a, I, I, I just left, um, you know, corporate America and began to start teaching for the first time and had, you know, didn't know what I was doing. I understood design, but I'd never taught before. And, you know, you're, you're confronted with, you know, uh, just dozens and dozens of, of graduates at this time. I actually, I, I think my first, my first teaching experience, I was advising 25 graduate students. Um, my oh, first wow. And, uh, and then sort of faced with how do I begin to articulate um, the, 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 how do I begin to articulate places in design where designers could go? And and because I was teaching, when I first started teaching, it was the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, and they have a very open sort of, you know, it's an arts institution as opposed to, you know, an engineering and architectural one. And so right. a lot of, and I actually, maybe half the students I had were MFAs. They weren't even architects, designers, oh, or architects. I had MFA students. And so I was just sort of, I was right in the middle of trying to make sense of these different approaches to creative, uh, creative, and then, you know, ultimately critical practice. Uh, and so for me, the book was, and, and Stephanie, uh, who had this sort of same challenge, we both came, she went, as I mentioned, she was at RISD with her grad work, and I was at Pratt. And both those schools have a more sort of 
conceptual approach or can have a more yeah. conceptual approach. Um, yet we both at the time felt like we weren't given the tools to do conceptual work. It was very mm-hmm. much go out there, do something, come back, we'll critique it, and we'll see if that, you know, if it, if it works or doesn't work. And, and coming from engineering, we were both like, where, where, you know, where are the books? You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> can you help me do this. Like, what do you mean? You just want me to go out and make something? Um, and so, so the the book project for us was very much how to begin to make sense and and in a way give uh, our students what we didn't get as, as students is as a little bit more of structure, language, frameworks, approaches for for doing this kind right. of sort of conceptual, critical, discursive work. So yeah, so for me, the writing is is a way to begin to make sense. I write when I kind of when I when I feel I I need to or or have to, um, but they all I mean they they just work wonderfully together, right? And and right. when you're in a practical profession like design, um, yeah, you need to be a maker. I think to be good in the classroom and to give good critique and to guide students. Um, I really enjoy and get energized by being in the classroom. So that's wonderful for me. And it also gives me the the time in the summers to, to do my own work. And the right, writing right. fits, you know, right along in there. Um, and actually it's really wonderful having a, a book like this when I teach, uh, when I teach classes on yeah. design. I've never, ever had a single book that has oh, been right, a foundation right. for me in a class. It's always just, you know, here's the reading list. Um, yeah. And and with this, uh, because there, there are so many references in the book that, you know, I, you're, we're getting other, you know, students are getting other perspectives in there. But um, but I'm able to use like this one book as the the, the, the core of what I teach. So that's really refreshing and, and, and sort of wonderful to, to, to do that and to be and, you know, to know very intimately, you know, every word that's in here. Um, right. Uh, and 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 know how it can be used and, and where it's valuable for students and actually and actually actually increasingly learn and uh, where it where it, it where it's working and not working uh, mm, in mm-hmm. different in different ways and how I might have to take this content and uh, um, uh, spin it or, you know, uh, discuss it from a little bit of a different perspective, because for certain types of designers, you know, they it right. resonates or not because I get designers who are, are coming from engineering and also ones that are more from the art side as well in my current in my, in my current teaching so their approaches are very different so um uh, so I'm, I'm learning how to how to use the book to to address those those different perspectives and also you know the different um goals and agendas that people might have in coming to a class my last question, this is a question that I use to end all of these conversations. Uh, and you've mentioned a couple, a couple kind of people throughout this conversation, but I'm, I'm curious if there are books or authors or theorists who have really kind of influenced how you think about all of this that, you know, someone's listening to this, they pick up discursive design. What are the other books that they should be getting along <laughs> alongside yours? Um, yeah, well, I mean, I think they're, for me, they're like four other key, key books. If I were to look okay. at I, and I think they're actually going to be more, um, I, if looking at sort of the trajectory of this field and some of the growth that we see in PhD programs and, uh, and like I mentioned, the influence of strategic foresight that I, I think we're going to see you know, a, a, a bit of a flurry of books in the next few, few years. But right now for yeah, me, yeah. um, I think, uh, Hertzian tales, uh, is certainly for me where, it, where it all starts, um, so with, mm-hmm. with Anthony Dunn's, uh, work that he did at the RCA. So incredibly seminal and, and just, uh, you know, understand yeah, the impact, yeah. um, that that has had in this, in this arena. Um, and then I look at uh, Carl DeSalvo's book, Adversarial Design, which is what I mentioned before, which mm-hmm. begins to, to put this in, um, in I would say, maybe even in, in a more responsible um, perspective or light and really begin to think about how this stuff is disseminated. And then I think speculative everything um, is very, yeah. uh, very important as well and, and certainly very popular. Um, and then I think lastly, uh, Matthew Mall passes a critical design in context, which came out last year in, in, Oh, I don't know that one. Yeah. Yeah. So he, he does a really sort of a great job of, of, of conceptualizing the field of critical design. And, um, and so, uh, I've, I've, I've met, um, 
Matt Poore, actually, when he was working on his dissertation, he had, we'd been working on this book for so long. It's kind of funny the number of people that, you know, Stuart Candy, like, oh, you're working on a book. Right. And it's like, uh, you know, that was 10 years ago. Um, so, but yeah, when Matt had approached us when he was working on on his work and and we uh, um, went on his dissertation and, uh, and there was clearly, we were struggling with the same issues. And so it's really nice right, to yeah. sort of see his, his book and how he, uh, how he approaches it. It's very much... Um, more uh, like a piece of uh, in design studies, more so than ours, which we 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 think of ours as uh, as uh, a little bit more of a textbook. It would really focus right. on how do you do you know we want to give tools for designers to do this kind of work. Um, so I think those four books are ones that I would um, that I think are are, are pretty uh, fund- fundamental seminal. Um, and also I think that for um, uh, I. Um, the th- I always this is sort of my list of three books that of uh, non-design books for designers that I that I really like. Um, the first is is a book called Bad Science. In, I don't know this. Yeah, one. Um, so it comes. Oh, um, oh, I forget the author now. Apologize. Um, but he he writes uh, news. He's a a, a medical doctor uh, who does a lot of writing, uh, popular writing, and really about. Uh, about about science and media and how the media uses statistics and it, it's really I think very helpful and eye opening as a designer but also as just a, a, a consumer and how how science is often used in different and not so not so great ways um, and so I, I also use it to help designer designers open up their minds a little bit to um, uh, to science and other fields and how they begin to think and, uh, you know, approach the world. So bad science. The other one, um, uh, one is uh, influence and that's by Robert Caldini. And that's a little bit of a classic in its area. And so it's, um, I think it's the subtitle and it's got a little bit of a cheesy subtitle. I think I'm sure that the, uh, the publisher <laughs> put on <laughs> the power yeah. of persuasion, right? Um, oh really yeah, yeah, yeah. At, I know yeah, this. It's, it's kind of a classic now, um, but it's really looking at how, because designers are so often, um, uh, we're in this sort of behavior change space, right? Um, that we're, we're working in more, com- increasingly working in more complex uh, problem spaces. And we're trying to, um, to oftentimes encourage people to, um, to do things a little bit differently, to have, you know, more preferred outcomes. So influence is one of those books. And the last one is, is made to stick. Um, oh, yeah, so yeah, yeah. again, another sort of, uh, popular, um, well-known, well-known book, but really if, and, and this is also where it, it can be relative, I think, to discursive design, although I talk about it for any of the designers, right? It's, it's largely about uh, communication and how to make your ideas, your design mm-hmm. or the ideas embedded or embodied in those designs, how to make them stick and how to, how to make them connect with people. And this is, again, one of the, you know, if we think about the sort of second wave, maybe if you want to call it that, in this discursive design arena where we begin to start to focus a little bit more on the assembly of publics and, and shift to a little bit more audience-centeredness. Um, that right. this made to stick and these ideas are, are incredibly important. If you, if you want to impact the way people think and remember um, your, your work, um, it's there. But I, I talk about also, so you want to be a good, a good parent, like it's there. And so, so those are my three non-design books uh, for designers. Yeah. I love that. That was such a great, great list, both, both the design books and the non-design books. And I really enjoyed this conversation. I, I really enjoyed the book. I'm really glad we got to, uh, got to have this conversation. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. It's my, really my pleasure. I mean, one of the things is we want, we, we didn't spend all this time on the book for, for it to sit on the shelf, right? We really want people to, right. to engage with it. And it's helpful to begin to, to, to give a little bit of an entree to the, to the book for, for people. So thank you very much. This episode was recorded on March 15, 2019. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Service Podcast. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening. <laughs>